Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and they've got many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, ask that as we think about uh, Jonah, that you would help us, uh, Lord, to hear what you have to say. Lord, that uh, we would listen with open hearts, with responsive hearts. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to catch a glimpse of uh, your greatness, your love and your mercy 
uh, and your astonishing compassion. Uh, Father, we uh, ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, when you uh, sit in Sunday school, uh, you know, maybe you can remember years ago, uh, sitting in Sunday school and hearing the story of the book of Jonah uh, and uh, Jonah being swallowed by that big fish. And maybe as you watched those slides that uh, Eric put up before and as he told that story, uh, you, you probably uh, missed maybe the fact that uh, Jonah is, I reckon, one of the hardest hitting books in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a fun story. It seems like such a fun story. God saving through, uh, someone through uh, oversized marine life uh, and then spitting them out on the shore of another country. Uh, it seems like such a fun story, but actually the truth is Jonah is a book which challenges us deeply. It asks us the tough question, do we care as much about mission as God does? Uh, if you were here last week or if you weren't last week, we looked at the first couple of chapters of Jonah and we saw that Jonah was a reluctant evangelist and also an accidental evangelist. He didn't want to go uh, to Nineveh to take God's message to them, uh, but God used him anyway along the way to convert the sailors on the ship. Uh, but perhaps the greatest tragedy of Jonah is not that he was a reluctant evangelist, but that he was a bitter evangelist as well. And that's what we see in this, uh, these last couple of chapters of the book of Jonah. After his uh, first abortive attempt, uh, at running away at least, Jonah is spat out on dry land and he makes his way to Nineveh. God tells him to go again. And finally he speaks that message in verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The response to uh, Jonah's message is astonishing. He probably said more than just that one sentence. That's probably just kind of you know, a bit of a basic summary of what he was on about. But the Ninevites, in verse 5, believe God. It says, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now that's quite an extraordinary event, really. When was the last time uh, you, know, you went and uh, preached to a large crowd of people to a city and they wholesale repented? When not just individuals repented, but, but there was this kind of structural repentance. The whole town turned. Imagine that. Imagine uh, that you, you went into Launceston uh, and you called people to repent and, and all of a sudden the mayor said, yep, let's do that, we've got to repent uh, well, you know, Albert might, but <laughs> imagine we had a different mayor. But, uh, you know, and then uh, what's that hall? Albert Hall, you know, is packed with people uh, wailing and, and calling on God uh, to have mercy on us because of our sin. It's almost unthinkable, I think. And yet that's what happened in Nineveh. It might seem to us a bit far-fetched. And yet, actually, that's kind of what happened in some of the revivals, the uh, the. The revivals, for instance, in Wales at the beginning of last century, there were reports, the Washington Post reported that 100,000 people in Wales were converted and that the police and the judges had nothing to do because there was so little crime. In Jonah's day, even the king gets in on the action in verse 6. Uh, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. 
And then he issues this proclamation. By the decree of the king and the nobles, don't let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The people of Nineveh's repentance has many of the marks of genuine repentance. Uh, First, it has this urgent calling on God for mercy. The king and the people realise that they can't do anything about it, they can't fix the problem, uh, that if they they turn over a new leaf today, that's, that's not good enough. They need to call on God to show mercy. So there's this urgent calling on God that, second, they turn from their evil ways. They don't just call on God and say, God, be merciful to us, you know, and keep throwing people over the, over the wall in the, with the giant spoon, whatever that was about. But they, they call on God and they turn from their evil ways. And third, they realise that they're wholly dependent on God's mercy. That is... They realise that it's not just enough to tick all the boxes. You know, repentance isn't kind of like a sausage mill where you put in all the pieces and out comes the mercy of God. No, actually, it's God's choice to forgive us. It's out of God's free grace. We don't kind of twist God's arm by putting on sackcloth and wailing and, and, and doing those kinds of things. No, we, we're... At God's mercy. So these Ninevites knew something about genuine repentance. And God in his mercy does relent. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. If there's one thing that's missing maybe in the repentance of the Ninevites, or maybe not entirely clear, it's whether or not their their repentance actually included turning to God. So they they turn from their evil ways, you know, from their kind of their their gross sins, if you like. But it's not entirely clear that they commit themselves to God like the sailors did. You might remember that the sailors at the end of chapter 1 make vows to God. They say, well, look, we're leaving our other gods and we're going to serve God alone. Whether or not the city of Nineveh did that is not clear. They might have just turned from uh, those particular evils of that day and God gave them, if you like, a stay of execution. But the point is, they repented in some sense and God relented. In a sense, uh, though, what exactly the nature of uh, Nineveh's repentance was is a bit immaterial. It doesn't matter all that much because strangers that might be to say, the book of Jonah is not really about the people of Nineveh repenting. Uh, It's actually about something else uh, a bit related. It's kind of helpful to, uh, in order to understand what the purpose of the book of Jonah is, it's helpful to understand where it fits in in biblical history. So, Simon, if you could... um, I brought that laser pointer again... Uh, so I don't know if you can see that. It's a bit dodgy. I've given up on doing things on computer and I just do it by hand now because uh, it's way easier. What's that? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, so people in my growth group will, will have seen this a million times. 
but so this is an outline of biblical history, uh, clearly. So creation, Abraham, David, Solomon, and then the division of the kingdom in 922 BC. So after Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel is split in half into the north and the south, and Judah goes off. And uh, Judah goes off over here. Uh, and then you can see Israel, the northern half, they go on for another 200 years until in 722 they're deported. They're, uh, they're driven into exile by Assyria. So Nineveh was part of Assyria and uh, Assyria comes and destroys uh, Israel in 722 BC. Uh, and what you'll notice is God sends all these prophets to Israel calling on them to repent. So God sends Elijah and Elisha and they don't repent, except for, remember the widow who repents, the foreigner? Amos, Hosea, they all get sent to Israel and they never repent. And then in the middle of all that that's going on, here's Jonah. Jonah's sent to Nineveh and to Assyria. And the people of Nineveh do repent. See, the book of Jonah, thanks Simon, the book of Jonah isn't just about what happens to Nineveh. The book of Jonah is like a slap in the face with a wet fish for Israel. God's saying, they repented. Your enemies did. And what are you doing? You're just going on as if nothing ever happened. Here I am, I've sent prophet after prophet, and I send them one prophet. And they put on sackcloth and ashes and fast and call on me. It's a salutary warning, I think, a sobering warning, that the repentance of others and God's mission to others may actually be intended by God to convict us of our own unrepentance. That is, as we see God sending people out into all the corners of the world, into all the corners of our society, and as we see people turning in repentance... I think it forces us to ask the question, are we ourselves repentant or are we like the people of Israel? Just kind of happily, merrily going along, ignoring the message of God. I think particularly if the repentance of others, if seeing other people repent, I think if that drives us to, to bitterness, then that's probably a good hint that there's repentance that needs to happen in our lives. And we end up like Jonah, bitter about the repentance of, the, of other people. We need to cast ourselves too on the mercy of God. So the book of Jonah in the first place is a warning that we need to be careful to repent ourselves as God fulfills his mission of calling people to himself all through the world. Well, you might think uh, at one level that Jonah might have been happy uh, that Nineveh had repented, 
their, their arch enemy had uh, turned from their evil, even from a purely selfish point of view, you'd think that would be relatively good news, that they'd, uh, they'd given up being so nasty. But chapter 4 presents a very uh, dispiriting picture of the prophet Jonah. Uh, it begins with the words, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. It turns out that the main reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he was afraid, not afraid for his life, but afraid that the people might actually listen, that his ministry might succeed. He knew that God would have mercy on them, but Jonah wanted the people of Nineveh to die and to be punished. And when he doesn't get what he wants, he's so bitterly disappointed that he'd rather die than go on living. It's startling to think that hatred of people could could run so deep that you would rather die than see them repent. But that's where Jonah is at. And I think that response of Jonah, that experience of Jonah, pushes us to ask ourselves, who is it that we might not want to see repent and be saved? Who is it that we might not want to become Christians? Who is it that we might not want to join our church. Uh, I was reading uh, a little while ago a wonderful story of an American man who was invited to be the Protestant chaplain uh, at Nuremberg, so the trials after the Second World War where many of the leaders of the uh, Nazi regime were put on trial. And this man, he was an American army chaplain, and he was invited by his superiors to take up a post as the Protestant chaplain for, these, uh, for the Protestant Nazis in Nuremberg. And he wrote uh, in an article several years later, he said, I had plenty of excuses for bitterness toward them. I'd been at Dachau concentration camp where my hand touching a wall had been smeared with blood seeping through. In England, for 15 months, I'd ministered to the wounded and dying from the front lines. My oldest son had been literally ripped apart in the fighting. The second suffered severely in the Battle of the Bulge. He had so many reasons not to go, not to be the pastor, the evangelist to these people, to these Nazis, but he went anyway. Fifteen of the worst criminals, maybe in human history, were his congregation. And he ministered to them, and in God's grace, some of them became Christians. At one point, it looked like uh, he might have to go home. Uh, And so a letter was sent to his wife from the Nazi prisoners. They said, your husband has been taking religious care of the undersigned for more than half a year. We have now heard that you wish to see him back home after his absence of several years. Please consider that we cannot miss your husband now. It is impossible for any other to break through the walls that have built up around us in a spiritual sense, even stronger than a material one. We shall be deeply indebted to you. 
and it was signed by all the defendants, all 21 of the Nazis who were in Nuremberg going through the trial. His wife wrote back and said that he should stay. He hadn't seen her for two and a half years. Some of the most vile criminals in all of human history. And this pastor stayed and ministered to them. Well, uh, your enemies and my enemies are hardly on the scale of the Nazis or on the scale of the Assyrians that Jonah was ministering to. But there are probably still people whose salvation uh, we might find the bitter pill to swallow. People we'd uh, rather not see become Christians. Maybe it's just annoying Aunt Jane. It might be the poor or the disabled. It might be uh, people who come from another ethnic background. It might be people who, uh, like the Assyrians, had been locked up worshipping false gods. Maybe uh, Muslims or uh, Hindus uh, or Satanists. It might be someone who's cheated us in business or uh, someone who's been responsible for destroying our marriage. It might be people who have embraced sins that we find hard to move past. Some of us might find it very difficult to embrace a person who's left uh, a life of uh, homosexuality in order to follow Jesus. I sometimes think about uh, what it will be like in years to come when some of the growing numbers of people who have undergone uh, gender reassignment, what it will be like when inevitably God calls some of those people in his grace uh, to Jesus Christ. I sometimes think, what will it be like as a church to minister to those people? How will we go with welcoming them back? What a heavy past to deal with. How will we love them? The unavoidable message of Jonah is that God wants even our worst enemies to repent and find Jesus. And when they do repent, our response is not bitterness or reluctance, but great joy. Jesus says, in the same way I too, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, what do we do if we're like Jonah and we're deeply hostile to the idea of other people being saved? What medicine, what theological, biblical medicine can we take to cure us of our bitterness and our resentment? The last little episode in the book of Jonah uh, is the way that God tries to snap Jonah out of his resentment. Uh, God begins by asking Jonah whether he has any right to be angry and Jonah just kind of ignores him actually. He doesn't say anything. He's so angry he doesn't talk back. He's probably thinking to himself, I'm not going to tell you what reason I have because I don't have a reason but I'm just going to keep quiet and hopefully, hopefully you won't know. Jonah uh, goes off and he decides to sit a bit away from the city and maybe uh, see what happens. He was probably hoping that 
uh, Nineveh would lapse into sin again and that God would wipe them out. And uh, as we saw in that little video in the, in the pictures that Eric showed, God makes this vine grow up over Jonah. Jonah tries to build himself a little bit of a shelter to make his weight a bit more pleasant. But God helps him out by this, making this vine grow to give some extra shade. And Jonah's pretty happy with that. Uh, but the next morning God takes that vine away. He sends the worm to chew the vine and uh, the vine withers. And when the sun rises, it starts to take its toll on uh, Jonah. You can imagine sitting in that part of the world out in the sun during the heat of the day. It would be pretty exhausting. I still remember going to the Sydney, Sydney Test Match years ago and we were on the concourse. What a mistake. I don't think I could ever buy tickets to a Test Match, uh, test match cricket on the concourse ever, ever again. It was sweltering. It was 30 plus and the sun was biting, uh, you know, in shorts and a T-shirt and I remember all I had for shelter was one of those four signs, you know, that you hold up and someone hits the four, it was about that big. And I just remember trying to, you know, trying to shelter under this sign all day. Here's Jonah. Dead vine, sweltering in the sun, burning heat. And if that's not enough, God sends a, a scorching wind to kind of top it all off. Really driving home the point. And Jonah says uh, once again that he'd just as soon die. It would be better for me to die than to live, he says in verse 8. Jonah is clearly a very depressive kind of person. Whenever something doesn't go his way, he just wants to die. And God asked Jonah again that same question about the vine that he asked about Nineveh. Do you have any right to be angry? Yes, I'm angry enough to die. And in verse 10, God gives the lesson. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. You see, Jonah had done nothing about this vine. He'd done nothing for the vine. It had just grown uh, and it, would, it had grown just as a simple act of God's mercy. And when it died, Jonah suddenly thought to himself, well, I was entitled to that vine, but he, but he wasn't. He'd not made it grow. God had given it as a gift and God had taken it away. When Jonah doesn't get what he wants and what he thinks he's entitled to, he just wants to end his life. And so much of the time it's the same in our bitterness towards God as well. Our bitterness stems from our inability, I think, to accept that God does what he wants rather than what we want. To say that the world or to say that life doesn't meet our expectations is merely to say that the world isn't ruled according to us or by us. In other words, it's just another attempt to make ourselves God in the place of God. It's a Good diagnostic question, I think. You know, doctors have diagnostic questions. I think it's a good diagnostic question for us as well. What right do I have to be angry when things don't go my way? When we get sick, what right do we have to be well? You know, it's so easy, isn't it, when we get sick to think to ourselves, 
God, why am I sick? How could you do this to me? I've served you faithfully for so long. But that just betrays that we think that the way that God responds to us derives from our merit or our expectations of the world. When we don't get the job that we wanted, what right do we have that God should give us precisely the job that we want? If we acted like that toward other human beings, if we expected every other human being to do precisely what we always wanted, I think we'd call that selfishness, wouldn't we? If a child acted like that, always expecting other people to do precisely what they wanted, we call it selfishness. But for some strange reason, when we do that to God, we think it's acceptable. God, you should do precisely what I want, and if you don't, then you're no God at all. Extraordinary, isn't it? So Jonah was bitter because God didn't do what he expected. But Jonah was also bitter because his values were completely out of whack. So verse 10 again, you've been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight, it died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah cares about the vine... Angry enough to die. But he doesn't care about the people. A vine has died. He didn't even do anything to make it grow. He, he, has, he has no ownership over the vine. It was just there. And when it goes, he could die, he's that angry. And yet a whole city of 120,000 people and the cattle is about to be possibly destroyed by God and Jonah doesn't care. In fact, it's not that he doesn't care. He does care. He wants, it, he wants it to be destroyed. When you make something, you care about it, don't you? You feel sort of kind of an ownership for it. And that's what God's saying about Nineveh. He cares about them. He's made them. He's created those people. But the, disp- the disproportion uh, in Jonah's thinking is not just Jonah's curse, it's our curse as well. It's evident in so many areas of our lives that we care about all kinds of other things and we don't care about God's people, the people that God has made. Back in July, there was a news report about some famous artworks uh, that it was suspected had been burned in a fire by a Romanian woman. I don't know if anyone saw that. They'd been stolen from a... Dutch gallery, there was a Matisse, I think, and a Picasso and a Monet, among a whole lot of other paintings, and they found this Romanian woman that they thought had, you know, was somehow caught up in the whole scandal, and they found an oven in her house, I'm guessing a wood oven or something like that, and when they looked inside it, they found uh, charred canvas, paint, and ancient-looking nails, and they thought, "Uh uh-oh, this lady's burnt some of these you know, priceless artworks. And the director of Romania's Natural Natural History Museum said, and I quote, it is a crime against humanity to destroy universal art. And again, I can't believe in 2013 
that we, can, that we come across such acts. It was an outrage. Irreplaceable. And yet, the war in Syria goes on and we hardly notice. Priceless artworks are destroyed and people are shocked. People die and nobody cares. Our favourite sports teams lose and we can barely sleep. The disappointment is palpable, furious, and we've not done anything. It's not like we're involved in the team as though our support gets them over the line. We go to the supermarket because we need cucumber for the salad and there's no cucumbers and life is almost over. We've not laboured for it. It grew and perished without our effort. And yet its loss is so devastating that it cripples us. And yet God created every single person in Nineveh and he knew them each by name. He provided for them, he loved them, They were human beings, the pinnacle of his creation. Shouldn't God love them? Shouldn't God care for them? Shouldn't God be pleased when they repent and when they're spared? Jonah was furious, but God loved them. Well, you might think that nobody cares about you. But the book of Jonah says that God does care about you. God loves you and cares about you very much. God loves you so much that he sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. No one else might care about you. Maybe that's true. But God cares and that matters more than anything else. The church might not care about you and that's a sad reality. But God cares and the angels in heaven care when a sinner repents. The American pastor to the Nazis that I mentioned before wrote about the final moments of some of his parishioners some of the 11 that he walked with to the gallows. He writes, I don't recall all of von Ribbentrop's final statement. Von Ribbentrop was the German foreign minister. I don't recall all of von Ribbentrop's final statement, but it ended with, God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to me and said, and my heart still warms when I think of it. I'll see you again. I spoke a brief prayer, then the big black hood was pulled over his face. The second was Wilhelm Keitel, the uh, uh, general. Our period of prayer in his cell was drenched with tears. 
At the gallows, we repeated together a prayer we had both learned from our mothers. He then said, I thank you and those who sent you with all my heart. Jonah got so many things wrong. But one thing he got absolutely right. I knew that you are a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, none of us know the uh, hearts of people completely and we don't know precisely what was in the heart of people like von Ribbentrop and Wilhelm Keitel as they were going to their death. But Lord, all the evidence seems to be that they were people who found salvation in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as hard as those things might seem to believe, we believe it because we know that you are a God abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and who relents from sending calamity. And Lord, as we look out on our world and our time and our age, We're challenged to think of all the people that we think are too far from the kingdom of God, people that we're tempted to hate or dislike, people that we're tempted to alienate, people that we're tempted to keep the gospel from because we don't really want them in church. But Lord Jonah reminds us that your heart for mission is so much bigger than ours. Lord, forgive us for our selfishness and our bitterness and our smallness of spirit. And give us the love that Jesus had to give up his glory with you at your right hand to come into the stinking mess of our world and to call us to know and to love him. Lord, we pray that you might give us the same missionary zeal And Lord, that you might bless us to see great repentance and great salvation. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.